Would you grab your Bible and turn to John 12 and let's read our text, John chapter 12. As we finished up last time, the chief priests were in Jerusalem. They were concerned about Jesus and uh, his growing popularity, and so they were plotting to kill him and get rid of him. And so we see a contrast of their response to Christ uh, with Mary. So John 12, verse 1. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And so Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In medieval days, there was a monk that was leading a church, and he had announced to his church that on the next Sunday evening, he would... Uh, on that evening service, he was going to talk about the great love of God. And so when that, came, that day came, the, as the sun went down and the shadows faded away and the light from coming in the stained glass came in, he, he began to uh, get the church ready for what he was about to do. And in the darkness, he walked up to the altar that was there and he lit a single solitary candle. And he walked over to a place in the cathedral that had a crucifix with uh, picturing Jesus on it, and he, and he held the candle up to his head, and he, he highlighted the crown of thorns. He brought the candle down um, to the side of Jesus and shown the, the mark on his side, and then he showed the hands and the, um, and the, the nails as, as Christ was on the cross, and then he brought the candle down to highlight the feet, and he walked back over to the altar, and the, there was kind of a hush in the room. And he blew out the candle and he just walked out of the church. And he left the congregation to sit there and to contemplate on the incredible, magnificent picture that we are loved by God. And God loves us in such a way that the Father sent His one and only Son and the Son willingly laid His life down on the cross. So we know well that God loves extravagantly. But a question I want to pose to us this morning is this one. Is, is it possible for us to love God back extravagantly? Not to equal His love, that's not even possible. But is there a way for us to, to show Him and to express to Him by our life that we love you? We know that you love us, but we want you to know by our life that we love you. And so I believe... And what we're going to look at today is a demonstration of what that looks like. And it is a great contrast for how we finished two weeks ago. Where the religious leaders who should have known better, should have been ready for the coming of the Messiah. He had been in their midst, manifested himself for three years, doing miracles, signs, teaching. It was clear and evident that God was in their midst. And yet they were plotting in Jerusalem to kill him. And in the midst of that, John gives us this unique, beautiful picture in the midst of all the hatred, in the midst of the hardness of Judas's heart that we will look at today. John gives us this beautiful picture of extravagance that can accompany those that love Jesus. So we're going to see two great extravagances. We will see the extravagance of love that Mary to Christ. We will also see the incredible extravagance of those who, who have a heart against Christ that don't want to walk with him, but have a, another agenda like Judas does and also um, the religious leaders. In regard to Judas, his heart is so indifferent that he is following Christ not for personal transformation, but Judas is following simply for personal gain. 
He's not interested in worshiping. Uh, the text we read a while ago, he used to slip his hand in the money bag and used to benefit himself. We don't know how he benefited himself, but he used to use the money that was given to Jesus and the disciples to get them around the country. He used to put his hand in there, and he's really upset, as we will see later, that Mary didn't sell this. And the reason was is that Judas thought, gosh, boy, that, boy I, I could use some of that if we had sold that. And he really wasn't interested in giving anything to the poor. And so let me want to kind of set the stage before we begin to walk through the text. So this setting in this house in Bethany, six days before Jesus dies on the cross, is a scene of transformation and it is a scene of thankfulness. So um, Matthew and Mark and John, all three record this story. Each of them give a little bit different perspective in regard to it. Um, but we've come to this text, and so I'll draw a little bit from that. Here's what we learn from Mark chapter 14. They're not at Mary and Martha or Lazarus' house, where this party is taking place, this dinner. They are at the house of someone by the name of Simon the leper. And so if you know anything about lepers, lepers couldn't invite people over to their house. Lepers, as a matter of fact, lepers couldn't be around people. They couldn't eat with people. So it's clear what had happened to Simon's life. He has been what? He's been healed. So he's back in community, he's back in Bethany where he lives and has a house. He is obviously, for however long, with leprosy, he has been gone out of the community. So I want you to watch this, watch the beauty of this. So six days before Jesus dies, he comes to a home by the name of Simon the leper. So you have probably, likely we would believe, probably safe to assume that Jesus has healed Simon the leper. So his skin, his body is whole. He's back in community. Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, is also seated at the table. Not only that, but within the band of brothers that Jesus has called, you have a guy who was a traitor at one time, Matthew the tax collector. You also have a guy who was called Simon the zealot, who would have been a part of a radical group against Rome, who would have hated somebody like Matthew who was working with Rome. And so watch this. Sitting in the room are lives who have been transformed by Christ. Sitting around this table. Mary and Martha have been changed. And so you get a room full of people who have been transformed by the powerful work of Jesus Christ. I looked around the room in the first service. I look around in this room this morning. And it is, this room is much like it was 2,000 years ago. This room is full of people whose lives have been transformed because we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are not who we used to be. There's a transformation, and the, the ultimate final transformation will not take place until we are in the presence of Christ. But He's done a pretty good job with the mess that all of us are. What a work that He does to transform us and to call us into relationship. So not only is this room a scene of transformation, it would also therefore be a room full of thankfulness. Can you imagine if you had leprosy and you had been healed, how thankful you would be? Lazarus probably couldn't stop shaking his head and couldn't stop talking about what had happened to his life. That he had been dead for four days. He didn't know he had been dead for four days. People had to tell him he had been dead for four days. But now he knows he was dead for four days. And now he's sitting in the room with Christ, with Simon the leper, with the apostles, with his sisters. And he's just incredibly full of thankfulness. Are you thankful this morning that your life has been transformed? What an incredible thing that has come to us through this relationship with Christ. So this is the setting. It's one of life transformation. It is one of deep thankfulness seated around the throne. And it's an incredible, incredible picture of what Christ can do in the life of people. So I want to talk today about what does it look like to make the most of a last opportunity that Mary has to be in the presence of Jesus and how she responds. And so in just a moment, we'll kind of begin to walk through that. But I want to talk about, just for a moment, a last dinner with friends that Christ has here. So again, he's, he's, he's had to leave. He's gone away for just a little bit, probably under two weeks. And he's had to step away. He's gone to the, uh, an area called Ephraim. It's about 12 miles from Jerusalem. 
because the religious leaders were plotting to kill him. So he steps away. It wasn't the right time. He was, he was going to be crucified at that coming Passover. So he steps away. He comes back. We are six days out from this. This is Saturday evening. And so Passover likely is over now. And so they are at the home in Bethany of Simon the leper. And they are having a party. And they are sitting down with friends, communicating with one another, sharing life with one another. So I want you to notice this, how important this is. Church is incredibly important. I think the Bible bears this out in our lives that we ought to be connected with the people of God. In the last week of Jesus' life, six days out from him laying down his life for the sin of the world and, and laying down his life and bearing or, or bearing in his body our sin, Christ spends time with friends. He pauses and he communicates to us that in our dire moments that are coming and that are present when our heart is heavy, that one of the things that we need is to surround ourselves with those who love Christ and who love Him. And so Jesus does that. He surrounds Himself with those He's known for many years now. And they are communicating to Him. He is sharing with them on this last night together. And so Jesus, obviously, His trust was fully in the Father, but He also knew the importance of being surrounded with people who love God and walk with God. And so again, Christ models for you and I the critical value of gathering together with friends around the gospel when trying days are upon us. So let's look at the next thing and let's talk about what does a heart that's satisfied in God, satisfied in Christ, what does it look like? What kind of expression does that heart give? So we're just going to spend the majority of our time in verse 3. So look with me in verse 3. There are a number of things that come out of this. And, and let's look at this scene from Mary of what a satisfied heart looks like. So let's read it again, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I remember, I'm not so old, that I don't remember walking by the middle school girls' bathroom in school and smelling all the perfume that had been sprayed and, and all of that. And if you've ever been in a van when a girl or an airplane where someone sprays that, it just fills the place. And so I want you to keep that in mind. That when she does this, this fragrance fills the place. And the fragrance gives this beautiful picture of a heart that loves God. But in the midst of this beautiful picture is also another heart that is giving out frustration and anger. And that's the heart of Judas. But let's look first of all about the scene of a satisfied heart. Those who love Jesus, and we see it in Mary here. They see things that are always true about who Christ is, and they just can't help themselves but to make sure that He knows that they love them. There are certain postures, there are certain expressions that we can have in our life that communicate as we worship that we are in love with Christ and that we deeply, deeply honor Him. So these expressions that we will see from Mary here, they are not part of those who play the game, who pretend that they love Jesus, but they flow out of a genuine faith and a genuine love. Uh, Judas's is all about personal gain. Mary's is all about personal worship and exalting who Christ is. There is no scene in the four Gospels where Judas ever bows his knee before the Lordship of Christ. There's not any indication. Now Judas was around. He looked in the face of Jesus. He had heard Jesus teach a lot, but there's never a moment where there's an indication that he really gets it, he believes it, and he bows his heart before Jesus. Never did he do that. He was not following for life transformation. Judas was following Christ for what he could get from Jesus for his own life. And there's a big difference in that. In this life, we may not get what we think God ought to give us, but the reality is He has given us way more than we ever deserve. And we may have an idea of what He ought to do in our life like Judas did. 
And if we hold to that, then it'll be easy for us as well to just betray Jesus or to even walk away because many people do that just like Judas. We have, many people have, a, have an agenda for Christ that they want Him to do, and when He doesn't do it, they get angry or they get frustrated or upset, and they will betray and turn away. But let me make a couple of statements about Judas here initially. A self-centered religious heart never blesses Jesus. It's never concerned about blessing Jesus, but it desires only the blessing of Jesus. I don't really want to bless you, but I want you to do this. You're the God who loves so much, and so you just, you bless me. And there's this, this attitude sometimes of that there's not a demand from God for us to walk in obedience and worship and to honor Him. It can also be said that a, a heart that can be easily bought off like Judas, Judas's was for the things of this world. And so here's Judas. He had a selfish heart and this reality that was there. And so in the first century, let me kind of give you another setting of the scene. Um, they would have small tables and they would lean in like this and they would put their feet back behind them. So you would lean on your left elbow and there would be a table and you would reach in and you would get food there. You would pass plates around, but this is what you would do. You would lean in. So if somebody came in and you were leaning down like that, if they came in to bring food, you would be standing over them. And so when Mary initially comes in, she is kind of standing over Christ as he is leaning and eating and talking, laughing, whatever it is that is happening and taking place. And so as he reclines at the mill, there's no doubt that they were probably, um, he's teaching them. Uh, he is, maybe Peter's joking about Lazarus being dead for four days and he kind of smells a little bit, you know, whatever they're doing at the table as they are sitting there. Um, Mary comes in and she just interrupts it all. Just everything stops down with this incredible demonstrative expression that's extravagant of her love for Christ. She enters the room from somewhere. We don't know where she's been. We're not really for sure what she has been doing, but she is carrying in her hand something of incredible value to her and also incredible value in the world at that particular point in time. And it gives an amazing picture of this deep love and understanding that she has of who Christ is. So what I want to do now is I want to give you, I don't know how many there are, um, I want to give you um, several principles of what a heart that's satisfied in Christ looks like. How does it live? How does it view Christ? How does a heart respond to Him that understands that we have been loved? And the first thing I want to point out is this, is a consistent pattern of Mary's life. Is that those who have a satisfied heart in Christ, they consistently find themselves in the presence of Christ, kind of seated at His feet. We have three pictures of Mary in the Gospels. Every time we meet Mary, in some unique circumstance, she's at the feet of Jesus. It's almost as if she can't stop bowing her heart and her life to the glory of Christ. So the first time we encounter her is in Luke chapter 10, in her sister's home, Martha, where they likely probably live together, and Lazarus may have as well. But they are there, Jesus is there, and there's a lot going on. There's a lot of serving going, a lot of food that has to be made, a lot of water and different things that have to be brought back and forth. And so Mary's real busy, and her sister Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus. And Luke 10 tells us that Jesus is teaching. And Mary's just sitting at her feet, his feet, just soaking in every word that Christ is speaking. Martha, the sister, is kind of tired of going back and forth and working and seeing the sister sitting there, steps into the room and interrupts what's going on and says, Lord, don't you care that I'm just so busy and working hard with all this and my sister is just seating, sitting at your feet. And Jesus says to Martha, 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 I want you to know this, that there is only one thing that is needed. And your sister has chosen what is needed. And that is the sitting at my feet, worshiping me, listening to me talk. And I'm not going to take away what she has chosen to do today. So here's the first thing we learn about Mary. That in the ordinary, daily aspect of life, where should we be? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Beholding Him. Listening to Him. The next time we meet her is in John chapter 11. Jesus has finally got to Bethany. Her brother has been dead for four days and in the tomb. Martha meets Jesus outside the village of Bethany. 
She goes and gets her sister who's inside Bethany at the house. Mary comes with her sister likely and comes back out. She finds Jesus still outside where Martha had encountered her. And when we see her, you know what she does? She gets to Jesus. She falls at his face, his feet. She falls at his feet and she says, Lord, if you had been here, I know that my brother would live. Here's the second thing Mary teaches us about a satisfied heart. Is it finds itself, the heart does in the presence of Christ in the daily ordinary things, but it also finds itself when our heart is in deep grief and our heart is broken. So here's Mary falling at the feet of Jesus, pouring out her heart in his presence. The next time we see her is here in John chapter 12. And she's going to make the most of a last opportunity. She's going to make the most of what she's been hearing the disciples say that Jesus has been saying, that he's about to die and he's going to rise again. She likely, because she was friends in the midst of all that, she would have known that Jesus had been saying all of these things. And so she kind of, in a sense, recognizes, I've got possibly tonight one last opportunity. If what he's saying is true, and Jesus, I've come to learn, didn't say things idly. And so Mary's like, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. And so I'm going to worship him. And so she comes in with this pound of expensive ointment, of pure nard, from the country of India on the banks of the Ganges, this incredibly handmade perfume and ointment that they used. And it was very, very expensive. And she comes in. And so to her, it doesn't matter the circumstance. If it's a last opportunity if it's a broken heart and sorrow, if it's in just my daily life, she finds herself bowing at the feet of Jesus. How is it with you and I this morning? Are you and I finding ourselves at His feet on a consistent basis? What does this life at the feet of Jesus produce? What comes from that? There's a great fruit that comes from that, and the fruit that comes from that is this, is that we deeply know who He is when we gaze and, and behold Him. When we delight in Him and we behold who He is and we hear His Word and we read it, there is a deep knowledge that's there. And it's interesting, I find, that Mary seems to be the only one in the room who gets the significance of the moment. You know, if you're, I know it's Father's Day, but if you're a woman, there are... There are tremendous biblical examples in the Bible of, of, of biblical womanhood. And I think one of, the, one of the unique ones is Mary. I mean, what a great picture she gives of falling at the feet of Jesus in the ordinary circumstances of life when there's deep sorrow and when there's just a moment of just spontaneous being moved by God to worship Him and to bow. And so... The heart that's satisfied finds itself at the feet of Jesus. Here's the second principle. The heart that's satisfied has come to an understanding. And here's what they've come to an understanding. They love much, love God much for this reason. Because they know they have been loved much by God. And I think that's the case with Mary. She knows Christ loves her. She knows it's real. She's tasted the reality of that. And so in this moment, she cannot do anything but love Him back much. And so she's going to give it all. So those who are satisfied in Christ get to a place where they recognize, I am loved much by God, and I'm blown away by that reality. And so my response is, I love you back, God. I love you back for all that you have done and are doing in my life. And so Mary, when she comes into the room, she breaks all kinds of social and religious protocols and norms. She does so because her heart is so enraptured by the glory and the greatness of Christ that she can't wait anymore. She doesn't want to wait till later. She just, in that moment right there, has to pour her heart out to Christ and anoint Him and worship Him. She invites herself to the party and just steps in as if she's a key central figure of it and just interrupts everything. But it's totally different than the way her sister interrupted things in Luke chapter 10. A sister came in all frustrated. Mary interrupts everything because her heart is enraptured and deeply in love 
with Christ. So a question to ask is this. Why did she do this? Why did she not wait until later, till everything was kind of over, it's kind of quiet, she could get some one-on-one time with Jesus, they could just kind of do this, um, where she had some focus time that was there, and it would not cause so much of a scene. Why? I think there's two reasons. Let me share those with us. And it's what I've been talking about under this perspective here. We are loved much. And she knew that reality. You see, we can love much only because of why? We have been loved much. I want to remind you of something that the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he, what? First loved us. So we can't, we, can't even, we can't even love him back if he hasn't poured out his love toward us. And so she gets it. I am loved by Christ. And for her, she, she gets it. There's no logical reason why I can't come in and love him a lot right now. Yeah, I know there's protocols, there's this, there's that. But for her, she's like, no, I've got this moment, I've got this opportunity. And there's not a reason in the world that I should stay away from drawing near to who he is. And so the fact that he loves much affirms that you and I are invited to live near, to draw near in intimacy with Christ. And so, so one of the reasons she invites herself into the group is she knows that she has loved much. And secondly, she knows that she is welcomed to draw near to Jesus. She came in this way because she knew that he wouldn't say, go away. That was not what he was going to tell her. He was not going to send her away. He, she knew that, that if she came in this way, that he would welcome it, he would allow it, and he would be joyous about it. Now listen to this. If she calculated what everybody else was going to think about this, what, how Judas might out loud be angry and mad, and we learn from Mark chapter 14 that some of the other disciples joined in with Judas, Initially, he was the main driver of it all. But if she had calculated everybody's perspective, would she have come in? No, she wouldn't have. She had bowed to the pressure of, oh, this is not the right time. They're going to they're gonna say this. They're going to do this. But she doesn't do that. And because she doesn't do that, we are the benefits this morning, the benefactors. We get the benefit of this. This story has come to us of a woman boldly coming into the presence of Christ and worshiping him. So she invites herself inside the group because she knew she was loved much and she knew that she would be welcome when she came in. He doesn't pull her aside later and say, hey, next time, calm yourself. It's a little much. There's kind of a little bit much in public in front of some other men. You need to be mindful of your audience, Mary. You don't have good party etiquette. Come on. Read a book. Go to school. Read a website, whatever the case may be. Mary, watch a YouTube video. Better party etiquette for yourself. See, she got what James would later write in James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. And it means this. You're welcome to come. You come. You come. You draw near because we can do so. And I've been doing ministry for a long time now. And one of the things I've seen to be true is that at times we seem to have convinced ourselves that we come into the presence of Jesus timidly, not boldly. As if we're not welcome to come in. And I want to just remind us this morning, we ought to always come in recognizing this is sovereign, holy, righteous God. But come in boldly. I want you to look at this symbol. I point to it all the time. And I don't have an empty tomb that I can point to, but if I had an empty tomb, I would point to it. And both of those things say to you and I this morning, not stay away. What do they say? They say, you draw near. The cross is not about keeping us away. The empty tomb is not about keeping us away. He doesn't tell Mary, go to the corner. We are invited by God to draw near, to be in His presence, and to pour our heart out to him and so therefore we must embrace this welcoming aspect of christ that we are invited to draw near to worship him so he doesn't tell her you stay back from me 
get away. Mary, stop this. Let's, let's, let's talk about this later. She is allowed to do everything that we see here. And Jesus affirms every single aspect of it. That is public, that it's in the presence of men, that it's culturally not normal. He allows everything, and you know what he calls it? He calls it good. He calls it a blessing. He has great joy from what she does. So a satisfied heart finds itself in the presence of Christ at his feet in any and all kinds of situations. Secondly, that heart loves much because it's just blown away that we are loved much. Here's the third thing about a satisfied heart. It brings the best to Jesus in worship. So Mark describes what she brings in as an alabaster flask. This is something that's made of marble. It's a very costly um, container that she has there. And inside the container, um, she she has something. There's three descriptions that give of what she is holding in her hand. Uh, the ointment or nard or perfume, whatever your translation may say. Um, On the banks of the Ganges River in India, you can still see this even today. Uh, The Romans and Greeks really perfected this. There was a flower that was there that had a red tint, an ointment with it. And they would draw that from the plant and they would use it as a perfume. And then they would also use it in the embalming uh, process as well. It was so expensive that only the rich could afford it and they would send it out from everywhere from india and it would go all over the the known world at that time and so that's what she has um she's got this perfume it's called pure the greek word for here in description of this means genuine not imitation she didn't go to 7-eleven and buy perfume did you know that you can buy cologne and perfume at 7-eleven that's not where she went i mean she had probably been saving up her whole life this might have been connected to her dowry if she was going to get married one day. This was incredibly expensive. Matter of fact, it was so expensive, it was equal to a common person's yearly wage. So in today's day and time, it would be worth thousands and thousands of dollars. I can't fathom buying something of that expense, but this is, this is what she has. They may have, as a family, had money, but she has this. It's somehow either she bought it, she saved and bought it, or it had been given to her so this is what she brings she brings her best and this is what she does she's got this beautiful marble container that has a little lid on the or actually a little like from this there would be um kind of a a a thing that pointed up that you would break this and if you wanted to keep it later you would just pour out a little bit and you would put something down inside that but she doesn't just break the top she breaks the whole container, and it kind of begins to run out of the container from her hands. She puts it on Christ's head, and she puts it on his feet. She breaks the whole thing. Now, we can only kind of speculate as to why she broke the whole thing, but it was common in those days that if somebody of a, who was a distinguished guest came to your home, and you had a cup, and they were your guest, and they were a really important person, and they drank from that cup, when the night was over, you would take that cup outside and you would break it and, and just break it to pieces so that nobody would be able to drink out of it again. It was a way to honor the person who had been your guest. So potentially some of that may be in her mind. I'm, I'm going to break this because I'm going to honor Christ with, with everything that is connected in me. And I'm not just going to put a little out. I'm going to put everything out. When we come to worship, Good morning. It's Father's Day. How are you doing? I'm going to step on your toes for a second. I'm going to step on my toes. Do we come on Sunday mornings when we gather with the people of God? And do we come and bring our best? Or do we come and bring just a little bit? 50%? And I tell you, some days I come in here and the body is older, not quite awake. Or it's been a tough week. We've come, we all come in here and it's been a tough week. But when we get in here, give him our best for an hour and a half. He's worth it. And that, in that moment of transformation, you know this, when we encounter him, what happens? We are strengthened. We are uplifted. 
And so Mary gives a great picture for us. What does a worshiper look like? They bring their best and they bring something that's costly, something that, that, that communicates the deep love that we have for Christ. Here's the fourth thing. I think as she pours out what's in the container, it's a picture of her heart for Christ being poured out. I think it pictures what's inside of her. She loves Him. And so as she pours this perfume, this nard on Christ's head and on His feet, it's a picture of her heart being poured out in worship of who Christ is. It was common in those days when you came to somebody's house that you would put a couple of drops of, of perfume on the clothing because in those days you didn't have easy showers and so there was a little bit more aroma that would happen and so people would come and they would be gathered in a hot room and so you would put a little bit of, of perfume on there to kind of help with the smell. Mary went way further than just a couple of drops. When I was a kid, there was a commercial. I think it was called Brill Cream. It had something to do with hair, if I remember. And the commercial was this, just a little dab will do you. And Mary didn't adopt that mentality. She's like, no, not a little dab. My whole life, my whole life I'm going to pour out. Every bit of this jar I'm going to pour out to the glory and the greatness of Christ. And so I think this is true of Mary and what we see here. This is an expression of, of wholeheartedness, of loving Christ and devotion to Him. And in the act, there was no reason for her to even start to calculate what she was doing. Because I think this is what she would have done if she would have thought about it. Here's Jesus, my Savior, the love, the treasure of my life. Here's my expensive yearly wage, perfume, dowry, important thing. Is there any comparison, Jesus, this? No, there's no comparison. I am willing to just pour this out and to anoint Him. And so for her to give it all was ultimately nothing at all to do. Wasn't hard. She didn't see the act as loss. She saw it as good, and she saw it as something gain to do that in the moment in the room. And sometimes I think we have a mentality, well, I'm, I'm 18, I'm 17, I'm 15, I just went on a mission trip, and it was incredible, and I've got my whole life, and I need to kind of pace my life of serving God and And I just want to say, no, at 15, give all of your life to Christ. Give everything of your life. If you're you're 35 this morning and you got a bunch of toddlers at home and you're exhausted, give all of your life for the gospel into those kids' lives. Pray over them. Talk to them. Pour your heart out. If you're really old, whoever's the oldest in the room this morning, give your life in your remaining years For the gospel, it is worth it. When I was called into the ministry, somebody really close to me told me this. When you go away to college, I know you feel called to ministry, but have a backup plan. Get a a degree as a backup plan in case ministry doesn't work out. Bad advice to those called to the gospel ministry. So I listened to that person. Oh my goodness, it cost some extra money. So I thought to myself, okay, I need a backup plan. My senior year, I took accounting, I passed it. So I was on the accounting track. Those of you who know me, boy, that would have, I would have been a great accountant. I'm, I'm good with money because I'm responsible, but numbers just fall out of my ears all the time, I, you know. And so, so I decided that I was going to be an accountant, so I kind of took some classes one semester. Guess what I failed in college my first semester of the counting track? I failed accounting one, which was a clear indication to me that I probably should not be an accountant. And the trouble was is that I had to, to get that off my transcript. What do you have to do? You have to take that class again. So I had to take accounting one twice. I did pass it the second time and got the F off of my transcript. Hear my heart this morning. Give your life, all of it, to the treasure of your life, who is Christ. Those of you who are young, 
down here, some of you here, those of you who are young, give your life now. See, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, gave his life. He decided, can I, can I find life if I keep God out of the picture? So he tries everything that the world has to offer. And you get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and Solomon concludes this. He says, here's the deal. In the days of your youth, seek God. Don't wait until the later years when you see that your life has passed you by and you've wasted your life instead of now living for the rest of your life in pursuit of Christ. And so I just remind us this morning, Mary emptied the whole contents of her heart. She didn't have a backup plan that day. It just was this. I'm going to empty my heart and empty this jar on the body of Jesus. Here's the next thing about a satisfied heart is they sometimes express extravagant expressions for Jesus. And you see this in John 12, 3. You also see it in Mark 14, 3, which is this same story. Mary didn't do this for the benefit of Peter so that Peter would feel, wow, man, Mary, you're awesome. She did this only for the glory of Christ. For her, she wasn't worried about what anybody else was doing in the room. Jesus was present. She had to get to him. And in her actions, she reveals something about the condition of her heart. Let me just make a couple of comments here. One, she was speaking as she did this of of her commitment to him. When you pour out Have you ever dropped something really important and it just lands on the floor? And it's over with at that moment. It's just out. You can't get it back in the bottle. You can't pick it up. I mean, it's just over with. So when she breaks this and she pours it out, she is saying this, there's no going back. I'm going all the way. So she's saying to him, I'm giving you a year's wage. This thing that's important to me that I have, I'm pouring it all out. And I'm saying to you, Jesus, that I love you. I'm not going back. I'm not going to have any regrets. Do you and I live with a no regrets view of our love for Christ and our pursuit of Him as a disciple? Secondly, it's a statement of her her perspective of His value and His worth and the treasure that He is. She had likely saved her entire life to be able to purchase a flask of perfume like this or it had been bought or given to her, as I said, as a dowry for her wedding. I want you to think about this for a moment. If this is a dowry for her wedding or for some other special use, and it was going to be used for something very special in her own life, when she broke it out, she broke it, she poured it out on him, she is telling Jesus, you mean more to me than my future husband. You mean more to me than anything else in this world. A year's wage and just... A brief moment, she just pours it out in worship of Christ. See, she could relate to what Paul would later say, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And she says to him, you are worth far more than my savings or any future plans I had for this thing. You're it for me, Jesus. Here's the third thing that she said in her extravagant expression. She made a statement about the view of herself. She understood who she was. In those days, if you let your hair down, there was only one group of women that let their hair down, and it was prostitutes. So right here in front of a bunch of men who have been transformed, she knew them, they were her friends. She lets her hair down. And she begins to wipe the perfume off of the feet of Jesus. That's probably running down his clothing. It's down on his feet. And she just lets her hair down. And she just, by doing so, she's saying this. I don't care what anybody else thinks about this. Christ is my treasure. He's my life. He came here to this world. And because he's here, I have this moment. And I will worship him. And I will adore him. The second thing that she said and did was this is that there was only one group of people who washed feet and it was slaves if somebody came to your house you'd give them a bowl of water and they could wash their own feet y'all like feet i don't know if you like feet i'm not you know 
So you give somebody a bowl of water. But we'll see this when we get to John chapter 13, where Christ, the Son of God, sovereign Son of God, washes the feet of sinful humanity. But here's Mary here, wiping and washing the feet of Jesus, taking on the posture of a slave. Here's the last thing in regard to a satisfied heart. And I want to make this really clear this morning. Students, some of y'all are going away to college soon. Colin's already there. Some of you are already there. Cody's there. And and Courtney, some of y'all are there already. You're going to go to a place that is not going to be like the environment here. There's going to be people attacking Christianity and, and mocking what you hold true. So surround yourself with people who love Jesus. But I just want to remind us, passionate love for Jesus is rarely applauded and and almost never applauded outside of the walls of the church. And sometimes, even inside the walls of faith, people look at people and go, boy, you're a bit odd. That's a little too much passion for Christ, too much love for His Word, too much, no, let's consider obedience and all of this. And so that's what happens in the room. Keep in mind, perfume filled the house. Everybody's smelling it. Nobody can avoid it. So people are seeing, sensing, smelling, hearing. I mean, everything is heightened. And in the midst of that, Judas just goes, what is the problem? And Mary, what? She's at the feet of Jesus. Her hair is long and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And Judas, the text says in in Mark 14, 3, and in John 12, 3 here, is that Judas scolded her. This word scolded means to be, in the Greek, to be very angry. It's a picture in Spain in a stadium when the matador has the red cape and he's putting swords in the bull and he's stomping his, the ground and snorting, and he wants to destroy the matador. That's what the Greek word means here. So in the midst of a simple, extravagant, heartfelt worship 2,000 years ago, it was so significant that we're talking about it this morning. Judah stands up and is stomping his foot like a mad bull. Going, no, 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 this can't be biblical. This cannot be right. Mary, and he's scolding her for what she has done. See, Judas had the biggest issue of all with her actions. And with Judas, he had a calculator in hand always. He knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. The most incredible thing had happened right before him. He had never done this. He had never bowed the knee. And he saw it as a waste. And unfortunately in the world today, even in Christian circles, there are those who are like this as well. Mary's act of worship brought incredible joy to Jesus, but it brought malice and disdain in the heart of Judas. The word waste that's spoken of here means something that is utterly destroyed, something that is ruined and something that is perishes. Everybody missed the point in the room. And I just say this to us this morning. Don't miss amazing moments. Mission trip people last week. That was an amazing week. What God did in, in the community that we had with one another. Don't miss the moments now that we're back. Those of you who didn't go. You have moments. Of encountering Christ. Don't miss the unique moments of God's work and being alive in our lives. Sometimes we will have people who will not understand why we love the way God, the way that we do. So either in private, in email, in a text, they will ridicule our love and our life for Christ. But why do they do that? If they're in and around the church, I understand lost people who don't know anything about Christ and the greatness of of who he is, but why do, why do people claim to follow Christ, look at passionate Jesus lovers, and go, wow, that's off. You know why everybody's acting that way in the room? It wasn't just because of money. 
Mary was the only one in the room who saw that Jesus' worth surpassed everything. Nobody else was worshiping that way. Now, eventually, the disciples got it. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles. Paul will write. So they did get it, but in this moment, they did not get it. They were upset, ultimately, because they did not think he was worthy of what they had just seen. And they would not have, and they did not, in that moment, express their love so extravagantly. Ten of these men will. They will be burned They will be beheaded. They will be crucified. They will eventually get it, but they don't. In a couple evenings from now, they will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the dark of the night, in his most critical hour, he will be praying out loud to the Father. Father, is is there another way? Can this cup pass for me? Nevertheless, Father, my will. He'll go away and do that come time. And every time he comes back, what are they doing? They're sleeping. They just didn't get it in the moment. And I want to make a point about that. I think it's really important. There's another really significant point that we ought to see here. We should never look at people and continue to judge them on one evening's life choice. There should be forgiveness and there should be restoration. Well, if you looked at these guys over a three-year period, you just go, is there any hope that the church could get started and be entrusted to people? And yeah, Jesus knew he had a great plan. I'm going to entrust this to people who will get it, and they will give their lives for the gospel and the glory of Christ. We should all get a chance to repent and move on from our worst moments of mockery, of joining in with others who don't get it, Forgiveness should be there. You see, the cross communicates that Jesus is the one who transforms us from those moments of just utter lunacy that we have sometimes into a life of faithfulness. And we still see this all around us today. Y'all didn't know this, but the clock's messed up. It's just 11.15 back there. So I'm just going by that clock back there. If that doesn't bother anybody, it's, you know, so. I've got 30 more minutes, okay? So we're about done. We see this mentality around us all the time. People give themselves to all kinds of things. People give themselves to money, and we call them a success. Some people give their lives to sports, and we call them heroes or role models. Some people give themselves in politics, and we call them statesmen. I'm not sure any of those exist anymore, but um, I sure would like to see some again in the future. Some people give themselves to great academic study, and we call them intellectual. But let a man, let a woman, let a 15-year-old, let a 22-year-old college student give their life to service of Christ and the gospel, and there will some who will say, what a waste of a life. And I say, no, that is not a waste of a life. That is a life that is lived well. We need no backup plans. But the, the point is this. There will always be people who do not understand our passion for Christ. And you just need to know that that's just the case. They didn't get Jesus. They didn't get Mary. They didn't get Paul. They didn't get a lot of people. So let's close with this. The sickness of the sinful, selfish heart. So verse 4 says, Judas, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this not sold for a year's wage and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about them, because he used to get personal benefit from the money. Judas uh, is is a strange one. He left that scene of unbelievable worship to portray Jesus for money. He didn't get it. He didn't see it. He didn't understand it. Just darkness, darkness of heart. And instead of seeking an opportunity to affirm Jesus' greatness, he saw the opportunity to betray Him. He was unmoved by it all. Beware of the heart of Judas taking root in our lives 
And I'll say this about Judas. I don't think he hated Jesus. I don't think he hated him. He just wanted Jesus to do what he wanted him to do. When Jesus didn't do what he wanted him to do, he was ready to check out, and it was easy for him at that point in time to try to get Jesus to move things along and to betray him. He was upset because he wasn't going to get anything out of what Mary could have done by selling that to benefit himself. And I believe when a person has another agenda for Jesus, other than him being the sovereign Lord of of all things, then you can easily betray him. You can easily walk away and turn your back. Judas is the type that we see today who's absolutely okay about being in the church around things Jesus as long as it fits the way we want it to go but if it begins to change people don't want it he wanted to control the outcome and honestly he did not like that Jesus is the savior of the world dying rising perspective and so we all come back to the first point that I talked about this morning We will either be in a room in Jerusalem plotting the demise of Jesus, let's get rid of Him, or we'll be in the room watching passionate person love Christ, worship Him, give their life to Him, and live that way, and we will go, boy, odd people, why would you do something like that? Boy, that could have built a new wing at the church. They might even put your name on it, called it the whatever building. Or we will be like Mary, we'll have the heart of Mary, where we just shut everybody out, And we recognize the worth and the value and the treasure of Christ. And we just don't care. And we give our life to the glory of who He is. Because He is worth that. We will have one of those three hearts. We'll have one of those three hearts. And just as Mary poured her heart out in desire and devotion and delight to Christ, Judas pours out the content of his heart and disappointing disgust over what he sees. And in both of their actions and in their words, they reveal their perspective of Christ. Well, he has a perspective of this, and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. She gets it. I've been telling you all I'm about to die. She has anointed my body for burial tonight. It's going to take place, man, in six days. You see, Jesus affirms those who embrace opportunity. So he tells them, y'all leave her alone, back off of her, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, that says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land and so he's like you're always going to have the poor but in six days i'm gone it's not going to be like this anymore and so she makes the most of the opportunity let me close with this thought sometimes we need to not be so reserved And let our faith just run wild and free. I'm not talking about getting out of control. I'm just talking about let your heart loose to worship Him. I'm not talking about in here. I'm talking about what? Out there. This was not a church service. This was a dinner. So our worship should be passionate outside these walls as well as it should be passionate inside these walls let our faith run wild and free and that at times that includes a spiritual impulse of i'm going to go sit on the back porch and i'm just going to put my headphones in and i'm going to sing out loud and the neighbors can hear it it's okay and i'm just going to sing i'm going to worship i'm going to bow my heart before him And if we don't make the most of the moment, if we're not careful, those moments just die out. And they pass us by. You see, we are plagued by, what I well, let's say this, we have this issue, we are plagued by the next blank. This is what it sounds like. Next week, 
I'm going to get going again spiritually. Well, next time, I'm going. Well, this fall, this fall, this January, this next job, this next thing, then I'm going to, I'm going to love Jesus and I'm going to give my life to Him. And, and this kind of thinking leads to things never happening. Today is the day. This moment is the opportunity that we have. She embraced the opportunity to love without reserve. Full of authentic devotion. Can you imagine what our corporate gatherings might be like if we brought our best? That means sometimes going to bed on a Saturday night so you can get up on the morning. But if you've got young kids, I get it. You, you, you never sleep, I get it. But we ought to bring our best. A focused mind, a focused heart, passionate for who he is to worship together. Because he is the treasure. He is the prize. He is worth everything and every ounce that we want to pour out. He's worthy of it all. Let's pray.